Okay. Um, well, I have nine o'clock, so I, I've heard from a few people, and I hope that they they'll join us as the discussion goes along. But I guess we might as well get started. Um, today is uh, Thursday, March third. 2016. This is the Fiction Old and New Book Group, and tonight we're discussing um, Edith Wharton's The Custom of the Country. And I'm just going to mention for the group here and also for the recording that um, we're going to have an author coming in two months, not in April, but in May, May 5th. Um, Her name is Aileen Ohazian, and she wrote a book called Orlan, O-L, I'm sorry, O-R-L-A-N apostrophe S, Inheritance, which is on BARD. Um, the DB number is 82407. It's a historical fiction book um, that concerns Armenia, um, but it's only nine hours, so it's not, not one of our more lengthy historical fiction books. And she's going to be joining us on um, May 5th in two months to talk about that book. So probably about once a year or so, we plan on having an author join us, and this year it's going to be Aileen Ohazian. Um, So let me tell you a little bit about Edith Wharton. Um, Edith Newbold Jones Wharton was born on January 24, 1862, to George Frederick Jones and Lucretia Stevens Rhinelander. Both of her parents were of English and Dutch ancestry, lived on inherited wealth, and their lineage could be traced back to colonial times. The expression, keeping up with the Joneses, was about her family. As a child, her family lived in Europe for several years, so this would have been right after um, the Civil War that they lived in Europe. When Edith was 10 years old, her family moved into a home at East 23rd Street and 5th Avenue in Manhattan. Edith did not attend school, but she was educated by governesses and spent a lot of time reading her father's books. In 1885, when Edith was 23 years old, she married Edward Teddy Wharton, who was from a similar background. Theirs was not a happy marriage, and they divorced in 1913. Her first book was a collaboration with architect Ogden Codman called The Decoration of Houses, which was about interior design, and it came out in 1885. She struggled between the demands of life as a society lady and the desire to be a writer, and she didn't publish her first fiction book, The Greater Inclination, a short story collection, until 1899. In 1905, she published her first best-selling book, the House of Worth, House of, I'm sorry, The House of Mirth. This was followed by Ethan Frome, The Reef, The Custom of the Country, which was published in 1913, and Summer. Her novel, The Age of Innocence, won the 1921 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. And just as an aside, this was actually a very controversial Pulitzer Prize award because Sinclair Lewis's Main Street actually received more votes than The Age of Innocence, but the jury voted for The Age of Innocence. Um, She was also awarded the gold medal by the National Institute of Arts and Letters and an honorary doctorate by Yale University, the first time both of these awards were given to a woman. In 1907, she moved to France, and she remained there until her death in 1937. She was very involved in relief work during World War I, and for her efforts, she was awarded the Cross of the Legion of Honor by France. So, um, you know, I thought a good place to start, obviously, would be to talk about the character of Undine Sprague. And, of course, it's really, really easy to dislike her. There's many, many things about her that that are are not pleasant. So I try to think of something about her that I thought was more positive. And I think what I found more positive about her character was her resilience, because she was a really resilient character. Um, If you remember when she attended the opera with her father after she got divorced from ralph marvel and everybody was talking about her she didn't just like bury her head in the sand and feel bad about everything she sort of picked up and she went to to europe and she carried on her life and she had a real resiliency she just kept going and going and the other thing about her that i thought was a positive quality was her ability to um sort of black out unpleasantness and difficult people 
um, she really didn't take on, like, you know, if anybody was unpleasant. She really didn't feel badly about it at all. She just could sort of block it out, which I thought was, in certain respects, a, a good quality to have. So why don't we see what everybody thought of this book? Well, I'll go first. I, uh, I was telling Sherry at the beginning, I only read about half of it. Uh, I, I just ran out of time, but I, you know, I, I don't feel bad about not finishing it because uh, I, I really couldn't find anything to like about Undine. Uh, uh, I guess she was resilient, uh, a resilient, flexible social climber, and uh, I, I tended to refer to her as unsatisfied uh, since it kind of tied in with her Undine name. And... Uh, 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 she just, uh, uh, I, I, I just really loathe people that are like her character was, and uh, I, I couldn't find anything good to like about her. Uh, of, of course, you know, uh, uh, I realized uh, this book is set in, in, in classist uh, United States, and uh, we've got the upper class, and she was wanting to be a, a big part of that. So yeah, that that's totally foreign to my upbringing, and uh, but uh, uh, yeah, she she put emphasis on all the st- what I consider all the unimportant stuff in life, and, uh, uh, and and I can't find anything less to aspire to than to, <laughs> to be at the height of fashion and stuff, which which seems to me to be a total waste of time. But uh, uh, you know, having said that, there there were other characters that I did. I mean, I I, I kind of liked Ralph. He he's I mean, I felt kind of sorry for him. He he was real pitiful because he had, uh, uh, when they just first got married and they were over in Europe, and the man just didn't have a clue about doing for himself. I guess he had been done for all of his life. So, uh, uh, but but later he, I think he got a job and tried to 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 to, you know, to, to provide for his family and stuff. But uh, uh, so I, you know, I don't know what happened to him. I, I'm at the point where I think he's got maybe he has pneumonia now and he's trying to. She's over in Paris, and so uh, I don't know what happens to him later. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I've gassed on enough, but uh, I, I just really did not like her character at all. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised that uh, uh, this was Edith Wharton's favorite book that she wrote. But hey, yeah, uh, uh, her prerogative. Thanks. Well, um, I'll be sorry to tell you, Alan, that actually Ralph committed suicide um, a little later, a little past the point that you were you were up to. So he he did not have a, a happy ending. He was sort of overwhelmed by uh, all of his circumstances, and he 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 decided to do that. Um, but one thing that you said really. I felt as well was I, I've read The House of Mirth and I've read The Age of Innocence and both of those books, while they're very, very good books, both of the times that I read them, I felt really claustrophobic because she portrays this very upper class wasp, New York society milieu and I was like, I, I felt like I couldn't breathe when I was reading those books. It's just such a claustrophobic world. And what I liked very much about the custom of the country is you got sort of an outsider's perspective of this world because Undine was not born into this world at all. Um, and, you know, neither was her father. And, and you saw, um, and Edith Wharton, I think she's very interesting because I think she has a real good sense of, of business and, you know, how business runs and, and you know, sort of the upstarts that, that have come in. Even though her family, if you go back in time, they were merchants also. I mean, they weren't like European aristocracy. But um, she, ha- she has a real good sense of, of that sort of closeted, claustrophobic sort of world that she escaped from by moving to Paris. So... I really kind of like this book a little bit more than I liked, um, well, The Age of Innocence I really liked more than I liked The House of Mirth because it, it wasn't as claustrophobic. We, we, you know, left that little drawing room of, of the Upper East Side New York society and we got to, to move around in other places as well. I thought it was interesting in this book how, in a lot of ways, the society people looked better than the non-society people like Undine and Elmer. Um, so that was kind of a change. I liked the book a lot, of course. I liked, liked all of Edith Wharton's books. Um, I thought the writing was just phenomenal. And one of the lines I wrote down that I really liked 
she just had a way of saying things that were understated. Um, and I don't remember who she was talking about, but she said about some guy in the book, he would try to induce an amiable young woman to mitigate the drawbacks of celibacy. And I just love that line. What an understated way of, of saying he's going to try to go out and hook up with somebody. <laughs> it was great. Um, I despised Undine, too, and although I take Michelle's point that she certainly was resilient and ambitious, I just despised her. I waited for the whole book to try to see her get her comeuppance and be dragged down into the dirt, but unfortunately that doesn't happen. At the end, Alan, she's married for the third time to Elmer, and she is filthy rich and everything, but she does bemoan the fact that she would never be allowed to be an ambassador's wife because she's divorced. So even though she seemingly gets everything she wants, you get the impression that she really never will be satisfied. Um, first of all, I want to say hi, Jill. Welcome. Um, and, um, oh boy, what was I going to say? I had something that I wanted to say. Um, let me think one second and then I'll release the key. Oh, it'll it'll come back. To so she marries that Elmer guy that that she was engaged to, like at the beginning of the book that that they they reference back to. Uh, that was her third. Who was her second husband? Yes, she went to Europe. She married a French aristocrat, uh, Raymond de Chelles. and then of course she ended up leaving him, and then she got back together with Elmer. Elmer. And, and again, you know, the same thing. But I, I'm just going to say differently than Alan and Sherry, I actually did not want her to come to a downfall because I really admired her resiliency. And I said to myself, you know, of course that's what everybody wants. I mean, I, don't, I didn't like her as a character, but I, I have to say I applauded her ability to just keep picking herself up and keep going and keep going and keep going no matter whatever happened to her. So if she had actually gotten everything that she should have gotten, then she wouldn't have probably been as, as resilient. Um, so I, didn't, I wasn't really rooting for her downfall, actually. Well, I didn't finish the book either, but uh, I, I don't, didn't like the upper-class milieu generally to read about, I guess, uh, anyway. But I read, and I, her insisting on the clothes and the wedding even though her father the, the mother was saying that they didn't have the money or the bills and so on she she was hit, hitting everybody for what she could get and, uh, and she was just a little hard to like um, well first of all welcome Mickey it's nice to have you here um, what did you all think of there was one point in the story um, where Ralph talks about marriage he says the daughters of his own race sold themselves to the invaders. The daughter of the invaders bought their husbands as if they bought a seat on the stock exchange. And I thought it was so interesting throughout the book how Edith Wharton just kept equating marriage and business. You know, she just sort of saw marriage as, as a business transaction. And I guess it sort of tied back to the way that she was raised, that she grew up in this very closeted, insular world where, you know, I guess marriage was supposed to be sort of a partnership between certain families, and her own marriage wasn't really a, a love marriage as well. Um, and Mickey and Jill, if you want to join in at any po point, please feel free. I do, and I'm sorry I was a little bit late getting in. To tell you the honest truth, I had forgotten to set my alarm, and uh, all of a sudden I realized, oh, my gosh, because I really wanted to do this. Of course... I'm an admirer of her writing. I just have always, from from even from on, I've I've been hooked by her writing, and um, of course we didn't like the main character because because Edith Wharton didn't like Wallace to, to like her, and you know <clears throat> right away because I I'm a parent, I blamed her parents for putting up with her nagging and crying and carrying on in the first place. I mean, if they put a stop to it right from the beginning, or at least made a real effort to put a stop to it, um, who knows what would have happened. And so, of course, it, it never happened because she always ended up getting her way. Um, I'm a little bit, you know, I, I'm not sure I would have gone ahead and read the book because I really don't like reading books where the main character is so unlikable. Um, 
but because it was Edith Wharton and because it was for this group, I did go ahead and read it. And I had a little bit mixed feelings about the end in the sense that, yes, I hoped she was going to end up on Poverty Row, too. But when the thing about the ambassador's wife turned up, I thought, yes, she's going to go on. She's going to go on being unhappy, just as she's managed to be unhappy in every marriage that she's had. And she's going to be trying and trying every way that she knows to break that rule and become an ambassador's wife. And let's hope it never happens to her because that will be her punishment. Um, And actually, I thought, you know, if I weren't so lazy, I would probably go to Google and see if an ambassador's wife has ever been a divorcee because I would bet by now that that has happened. Um, so basically, that's my take, and and I I thought she was extremely short-sighted in choosing her husbands. So I I didn't feel like circumstances kind of happened to her. I thought she brought on the problems that she had. Yeah, I I used that word also when I was writing notes. I thought she was short-sighted also. I thought marrying Ralph, she was short-sighted. Marrying Ramon Dechelle, she was short-sighted. I do think she really, she was a little bit impulsive. Um, I actually thought the most interesting relationship in the book was between Undine and her father. Um, Her father finally stood up to her when they went to the opera and Undine had gotten some pearls from uh, Peter Van Degen, who I didn't understand. She seemed to be traveling around Europe with him, but they weren't married. And I thought that was a little out of character for Undine. You know, she seemed to, like, withdraw and, and not give in until she had the ring kind of. But her father finally stood up to her and said, you know, Undine, you got to get rid of these pearls. And, of course, you know, being Undine, she didn't return them to Peter Van Degen. She sold them and, and lived on the money for a while. But I thought her father gave in to her all the time because, if you remember, he lost his two other children to typhoid from that drinking water. You know, there was that whole thing about that. And I kept saying her father, you know, could really stand up to her. Why doesn't he ever stand up to her? And I thought maybe it was because she was his only remaining child. Um, And the other thing I just wanted to mention was her name. Her name, they said in the book, um, she was named after a hair weave. And there's something like undulating hair, which is sort of like when you crimp your hair. And also they use the nickname Undie, which is kind of like a little bit, you know, slangy kind of name. So it was an interesting name. Well, I really... Uh, Jill pretty much said the way I felt about the book. I did not, I, granted I wasn't supposed to like the main character, but she was a spoiled brat, absolutely. Um, everything had to go her way or no way, and if, if not, I'll throw a fit. Yeah, I, I thought about trying to make that work, but it doesn't seem to happen. Um, but the... the um, you could be right on the typhoid thing that that um, the father had lost the other two children, but uh, he but didn't do her any favors until he stood up to her. And the um, uh, I had something else, but it's out of my mind. <laughs> Too many things at one time. <laughs> and I, I'm going to say this. I know it's going to sound juvenile, but yeah, you know, I, I can be juvenile quite often. I took some pleasure in the fact that her her nickname is now a reference we make to, to underwear. So, uh, and, and yeah, she she was always uh, never happy, never satisfied. I mean, anybody that puts their focus on those shallow things like she did, they're they're never satisfied because you you can't get any kind of uh, there is no satisfaction to be had with those kind of things. So I mean, you're always wanting to to get something, uh, uh, you know, something valueless out of fashion or social status or whatever it might be. So you're, you're never going to be satisfied if that's what you're pursuing. So it's, it's no wonder she never was happy. 
Well, I actually thought that's what made her an interesting character. I mean, a really fascinating character is because she was just, she just kept going. I mean, I, I was marveling at, at her ability to just pick herself up from one situation and go into another situation. And she just didn't seem to care what anybody thought. And granted, that's not a pleasant person to deal with in real life, but as a character, I have to say, I thought she was just fascinating, and I just kept wondering what kind of trouble she's going to make from from place to place. Um, And um, to me, the funniest line in the whole story was when she was married to Raymond Deschel, and she ran into Elmer again. And and, And by this point, Undine has converted to Catholicism, and you know she's telling Elmer, I can't, I can't get divorced because I'm Catholic. And he looked at her and he said to her, "But I think you were born a Baptist." And it was so true because he just saw right through her. He saw, you know, who she really was and where she started from. And here she is. She she has this whole new identity that she's created for herself. But she really wasn't born a Catholic, and she probably really didn't practice being a Catholic. And I thought that was interesting. Um, and I thought the the saddest relationship the saddest person in the story was her relationship with her son Paul which was really very very tragic um, he had three different fathers um, you know his father Ralph who killed himself and he had his fr- what he called his French father and then he had a new father Elmer and I guess if she marries an ambassador he's going to have a fourth father and the, the, the story that it reminded me a lot of is um, Madame Bovary because in Madame Bovary she also pays absolutely no attention to her child as well. So it was it was very sad. I thought that was he was the most tragic character in the story. I thought it was interesting that all three men treated Paul better than she did, which really went against the sex stereotypes of the time. I mean, I wouldn't have expected Undine to treat him well, but it was interesting that all three men seemed to really genuinely love or at least like him and try to be nice to him and treat him well. Um, Ralph was an interesting character because he was sort of, I didn't think he was that smart. I mean, if he would have thought about it when Undine was trying to get um, Paul, custody of Paul, Undine's father told um, Ralph that Undine had been married to Elmer, which means she was a divorcee. All uh, Ralph would have had to do is threaten to expose that, and she would have given up the custody thing because she didn't want her French husband-to-be to know that she was a divorcee. Um, of course, she was going to be a divorcee from Ralph, too. I also noticed that at some point in the book they mentioned that Ralph, it sounded like he didn't expect to have to work, that he took this job and he, in an ordinary life he would not have had to, which I guess he just was going to lay around and live off his parents' money. I'm not sure. But I wasn't too impressed with him, although I certainly liked him better than Undine. See, I really did like him, and actually... I felt more sorry for him um, than anyone else in the book that that she would really be the reason for him to commit suicide and the, and the fact that, she, you know, she really didn't even care that he'd done that. I mean, I thought that was was the extreme of the thing. And, yes, I, I certainly, you know, it was really a very sad book when you think about it. And certainly I felt sorry for Paul, and I do agree, the men were far better to him than she ever was. Um, but, I mean, to think, you know, that he, that, that Ralph would, would be, feel compelled to commit suicide over all of this, uh, I just thought was, was awful. And, and I guess, <clears throat> I think there was a certain class in New York at that time, and the men were going to be supported by family funds and, and free to go whatever course they wanted to go. And, of course, he was going to write this. He was, he was going to write. I mean, that's what he had planned to do. And then he couldn't in order to support her needs that she wouldn't give up. I mean, all in all, you know, that re- really, this was a, a terribly sad book. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there were... At least for law firms, I mean, there were a, a number of law firms where there were a certain number of the partners that came in, and basically they were there 
because they came from the right families and they weren't really there to do work. And, you know, I think those were the kind of jobs that they had where they went in, they read the paper, they went to their club for lunch. You know, it wasn't like what we all think of as a job. Um, And also, I mean, if you remember, it was Mr. Sprague, not Undine, who actually told Ralph that Undine was divorcing him for desertion. So she didn't even have the empathy, the sympathy to tell her own husband. And if you remember, Ralph wasn't feeling well at the time either. And, you know, Mr. Sprague was was always sort of doing Undine's dirty work for her. She just took off and, and did whatever she wanted to. And, you know, he was cleaning up a lot of her messes. Um, And also, I wondered, I wasn't really sure if this was Edith Wharton's attitude, but if you remember when she was married to Ramon Deschelles, they had this sort of attitude in, in Europe where women could be married and men could be married and they could have friends on the side and that was completely acceptable because they were Catholic and they were never going to get divorced. Um, and I, I really didn't know if Edith Wharton you know, went along with this or if she didn't go along with this. I couldn't really tell from, from the story. But I think you're right, Jill. I think there were a lot of really sad elements, actually. And, but I also think she was commenting a lot on the different societies in which she she lived in and also i think i think she saw the way that the new the new business people were taking over sort of like the american aristocracy and you know the that people weren't they were going to sort of take over the inherited and you see that also in the house of mirth as well she has a lot of those those kind of characters in her books i think the reason that she really didn't care about her son or all of her relationships that she went into and out of were just to point up the shallowness the the absolute um, I am in charge of my life I will do what I choose I it's my world and I'll live it you know she was very shallow and I don't admire her getting up and and uh, keeping on going because it didn't bother her. She just sort of went, okay, well, that didn't work, so I'll have to do this. She was really quite impulsive. I think it was Jill that said that earlier. She didn't seem to think things through, or she probably would have picked a richer husband to start with and maybe wouldn't have had to switch so often. And isn't it really sad to think that what she was absolutely traded on were her looks? Of course, we could hope that, you know, old age set in and she could go less and less that way. But that was really what she was marketing. I mean, I think when she came to New York and she met Ralph Marvel, I mean, I don't think she knew too much about this world. And I don't think she really knew that he was living on his inherited wealth. I just think she wanted her way into that society and he was her way. And then she went to Europe and she wanted her way into the European aristocracy and she got involved with with, um, Raymond Deschel. And probably her best shot was with Elmer because Elmer at least knew her from, you know, back in the day. And he knew who he was marrying, but she couldn't be happy with him because she always wanted wanted something else. So she was somebody who, I don't think it mattered if she had unlimited wealth, if her husband let her do anything she wanted. It, it didn't seem to matter. There was always something else that she wanted. And I wasn't really sure what Edith Wharton was trying to tell us with this character. I mean, you know, is she telling us that, that the United States that the new people that are coming in are all greedy and they're never satisfied. It was, you know, she probably had a message somewhere in Undine, but I wasn't quite sure what that message was. Well, remember, Michelle, I mean, you were talking about um, this thing with Peter Van Stegen, was that his name? Uh, Remember, it said that she was living with him for, I think it was two months. And and remember that? And, And... and the reason then that she was told later that he started ignoring her and would not respond <laughs> was he saw her reaction uh, when when Ralph committed suicide, and you know she she actually um, you know just went ahead with her divorce thing and the whole bit, and he said all I could think of 
um, if I were in the same position, would she do that to me? So, you know, she was really, really devious. Yeah, Peter was kind of a scumbag himself, too, and I think she thought she had him in her little claws, and then she lost him because of that. Um, yeah, he, he wasn't very nice. It was interesting to me that Elmer managed to make his way into high society by being devious from a business perspective. And she didn't develop his character as well as Undine, but he was, I found him rather likable. And so maybe, you know, it was just easier for a man to break into society through business rather than having to marry up. Yeah, I'm sure it was easier for a man to break into society, but also I don't know that we heard Elmer's whole story. So, I mean, I don't know that I didn't really find him likable. I just kind of thought of like the business tycoons that make their own money and um, I don't know. You know, there's there's many, many examples of those. Um, but the the only moment in the story where Undine, I thought, actually was kind was there was a scene where... Um, Undine's mother wanted to have a relationship with her grandson and finally she managed to arrange that Paul could come and visit her and Paul said who is that picture of because there was a picture of of Undine and he didn't even recognize his own mother and when Undine's mother wrote to her about this Undine actually had some tears running down her her cheeks so for that moment she was upset, but then she started thinking to herself, well, I can bring Paul over once I marry Raymond Duchel and I have a new husband. So, you know, it was very fleeting with her, but then she just went back into her, her regular personality. Yeah, those tears were a little out of character. I thought she, I was trying to think of what devious thing she was thinking at the time. Either she was angry with Paul for not recognizing her or angry with her mother for pointing this out to her or feeling that this wasn't the way children were supposed to feel about her father, so once again she wasn't fitting in. But I don't even give her even a crumb of credit. Do you guys think society is still like this, like in New York and, and cities? Um, I think to a certain extent, yes, I, I really do. But I think the difference is, I think the people that live on Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue, a lot of them now... Um, are not necessarily from, like, the old, old money. Like, you can get... There was a time... There's actually a building on Park Avenue not so far from where I live, um, which is the only building years ago that Jewish people could move into. Like, there were some very wealthy Jewish people, and they were only allowed to move into this one particular building. And it was known as, as that. That was the building that Jewish people could move into. So now I think it's, it's different. But I think that there is... Um, there are certain schools, there are certain places that are, you know, probably similar to what it would have been at Edith Wharton, but I think you can break into it under certain circumstances, and it's probably easier, I think, than it would have been 100, 100 years ago. would have been probably unthinkable. I, I was wondering, uh, I realized the book was, was set back in the, I guess, the early 20th century, and... Uh, I was wondering if you ladies got your hackles up when it talked about uh, uh, well, some of the men were opining about uh, women in or you know women's places and you know how bored they were with this and that and the other and how uh, I, uh, there was one scene where some guy was going on about uh, you know the man needed to let the woman know about you know what he was doing in business and stuff so so she wouldn't be bored and this and that and the other which you know. I mean, it was probably a fairly accurate portrayal of how society was then, but I, I still I had to laugh. I thought, you really have come a long way because, I mean, we, we've gotten so much further with the, how society looks at, at women and gender roles and stuff. And uh, I just thought, uh, uh, I think I think I might have uh, I might have gotten my hackles up a bit reading some of that if, if, I, if I were female. But uh, I was just wondering what y'all thought about that. Well, yeah, I noticed, I noticed that stuff. It didn't really annoy me because it was a product of its time. I don't think there were too many suffragettes in New York high society at the time. But, yeah, it did make me cringe just because it's like, oh, man, that's bad. But uh, certainly that's what they thought back then. Yeah, I, I cringed, but that's right. It was a, a period of its time or a, a, a thing of its time. In another book I was reading 
the uh, the wife, if there were men in a room talking or playing cards or whatever, the woman was expected to knock even in her own home before she entered the room. And this was just what they did. Um, this is a little off track, but um, I think I think really the publishing of the woman's mystique, women's mystique, uh, really had a big influence uh, on, a, on an awful lot of women who had been placed in this subservient role, and all of a sudden they said, "I'm not going to be like that anymore. I'm going to have." I'm going to have my say in this religion. And actually, it was very interesting because uh, I had been raised by a widowed mother, and I saw strength um, without even realizing what I was seeing. And so to me, I I didn't particularly relate to the women's mystique because I I was already knowing that women had to stand up for their (laughs) rights and what they wanted. So I thought... So I think maybe, you know, it did have an awful lot of influence on women who up to that point had been afraid to be women. Yeah, I think, I think you're talking about the, the femin, Feminine Mystique by uh, Betty Friedan, which I think came out like in 1963, around there, and was a really, really, I've read it, it's, it's a really, really good book. And I think she, she was talking a lot about, you know, like the image of the 1950s, where women were supposed to stay at home and raise the family, and men were supposed to go out. They were defined roles for men and women. And if you remember, like in the 1920s, I think that was when women, you know, kind of were breaking out of it a little bit. And then in the 50s, I guess they kind of went back to that again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Edith Wharton clearly didn't um, didn't really end up living that way. I mean, she was a very independent woman, but I think she was a very independent woman in part because she came from a lot of money. I mean, she had houses. She has a house in the Mount um, in Lenox, Massachusetts. She lived in Newport. She lived in New York City. She was able to move to France and buy you know, this very nice place to live. So it certainly helped her that she really didn't have to marry for money. She already had money. And then she was a writer and her books were very popular, so she obviously made money that way. And she definitely, if you read her books, she has a really good sense of business. Um, I don't know if she read business newspapers or she talked to a lot of business people, but she definitely understood business very well. Yeah, I, I suspect, I mean, I, I realize that uh, that was the way that, uh, the women were thought of during that time. I'm not sure that I'm convinced that Edith, Edith Wharton's uh, uh, subscribe to those rules uh, I, I suspect she was probably uh, ahead of her uh, most of her gender and stuff because she I think she was a, probably a good well I mean obviously she was a successful writer and stuff and I think she like you said Michelle she was a I think she understood business and stuff and I, I think she was probably somewhat ahead ahead of the game and, and, and probably wouldn't have stood <laughs> stood for some of those attitudes do, do any of you feel that any of her marriages were happy? Her marriage to Ralph, or her marriage to to Raymond Dechelle, or her marriage to Elmer? Did you have the sense that they were happy at all, or they all sort of started out that she just wanted something, and then she got it, and then she very very quickly lost interest and and moved on to something else? I don't think she knew how to be happy. I don't think any of the marriages made her happy. Uh, happiness is more an internal thing, and she didn't have that in her. And I don't think she was looking for happiness in marriage. I think she was looking for upward mobility and, and money. And I think initially she was probably happiest with Elmer because he didn't seem to care what she spent her money on. But um, it sounds like that was about to change. Well, Mickey, I'm curious. At the last meeting, you said you really disliked Edith Wharton when you'd read her when you were younger. Did you find her more palatable now? just the writing in general? I think I could probably read, read, I can say this word, read The Age of Innocence again and enjoy it a lot more than I did when I was 19. Um, it, it, uh, yes, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a good book. I thought it was well, the characters were well-developed on the whole. And, uh, yeah, I'll read more. 
Yeah, The Age of Innocence is really a very, very good book. And I actually, I read The House of Mirth maybe a year or two ago. And it's good, but The Age of Innocence is way, way better. Um, And Sherry, I think you mentioned this earlier, but does anybody have any thoughts on why this would have been Edith Wharton's favorite novel? I wanted to mention, too, that a lot of her short stories are really in some ways I like them better than her novels, particular Summer and The Mother's Recompense. Um, I'm thinking it might have been Edith Wharton's favorite novel because it was probably a lot of fun to write about a villain like this um, and make her just as despicable as possible. Did you have the sense that I was trying to remember why Ralph didn't marry his cousin? Because I guess in that time you could marry your cousin because it was a very closed society. Um, Claire, I think, was his cousin, or Laura was his sister, right? And Claire was his cousin. And I don't know. It's, it was. I thought. I, I almost felt like they belonged together, and he really shouldn't have ended up with Undine. And I was trying to remember why it was that he didn't marry her. I think he met um, Undy and um, fell for her, and decided that that uh, Claire had to be kind of put aside, uh, still loved, still cared about, but it was a cousin. You know, and um, They might have done that in... I, I didn't know that they did a marry cousins in that society at that time. That's a genetic screw-up. Did, did she marry... Did Claire marry Peter Van Degen? Was she married to him? Wasn't she married to Van Degen? Yeah, I was thinking she was married to Peter before Ralph married Undine, but I'm not sure either. I I can't remember why he didn't marry her either. In retrospect, he certainly would have been happier cousin or no. Well, I'm pretty sure she was married to Peter um, when when Ralph met um, Undine. Um, And I I get obviously, you know, she didn't believe in divorce. I don't think Peter's money is what kept her with him. I think she simply wrote divorce off. That that just wasn't what she was going to do. But, you know, I was disappointed there when he committed suicide, too, that he just didn't go to her for more help because every time he was with her, he felt better and... You know, even if he, even if she wouldn't marry him, um, I thought he, she gave him a lot, and I was surprised that you know she, he couldn't even do that at, toward the end. I did not expect the suicide. I, I was that shocked me. It just um, was the last thing I thought he'd do. Yeah, I didn't expect that either. I thought it was probably a pretty impulsive act. I mean, he had a not only support support from Claire, but his sister Laura was extremely supportive and helpful. And it seems like his grandfather and his mother and father were also there for him and helped watch Paul and stuff like that. I I think it was, you know, finding out that Undine had been married and lied to him on top of everything else just was maybe the last straw, and I don't know. I thought it had something to do with the money because if you remember, he went to Elmer Moffat and he said, I need $50,000 or $100,000 really quickly. So, um, And then he put him in some kind of a deal, but he didn't tell him, of course, all the facts. And then he came back. It's always amazing to me when somebody gives money to somebody for an investment and they expect like two weeks later they're going to get their money back. I'm like, you know, I don't think investments work like that. So, but he clearly thought that he was going to get his money really quickly, and then Elmer kept saying, "Well, you know, you got to wait." And I invested my own money in it, and it's a good deal. And I think that was that was also driving him. You know, that he had financial issues as well. Um, but it was it was a little surprising. I agree. I mean, I don't really think it was so bad that. He would have been driven, but as Sherry said, I, you know, suicide is often an impulsive act, so hard to say. I did not um, think that the the uh, the money situation. He he, being a businessman or being in that society, he wouldn't shouldn't have expected to get his money in two weeks. Um, I mean, right away, my thing was flim flam. You know, this isn't going to work. 
and I was surprised that he was that naive. Well, eventually the money did come through after he was dead, because that's what Elmer uh, made a fortune on. It just came too late. And he needed the money to pay off Undine so she wouldn't demand custody of Paul, if I remember right. So I think he not only saw his divorce pending, he saw his the loss of his son, whom he really seemed to love. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, but the thing about Undine is, you know, I sort of wondered what was it about her that was so fascinating to so many men. Because, yes, I'm sure she was beautiful, but, you know, there are a lot of women that are, are very attractive. And there just was something about her, um, maybe because she just couldn't be captured, you know. Or, you know, sometimes people want things that they see as unattainable and she must have had that kind of quality about her but I I thought it was more than just her beauty but I I couldn't exactly put my finger on what it was that because the men that she were with were really different I mean you have Ralph and you have Raymond Deschel and Peter Van Degen and you know Elmer and they were all kind of different types and she seemed you know they all seemed to be mesmerized by her and it was hard for me to believe that this woman was so fetching that, you know, every man that saw her would just be completely captivated by her and want to marry her. So I, I thought she had to have some other quality as well. Well, they kept stressing that it was just her looks. They didn't, uh, she didn't indicate that anything else was there at all. Well, I'm sure Undine could turn on the charm when she needed to. But, yeah, I think in that age men were looking for arm candy because the women weren't really expected to do anything except have kids and, you know, make a good showing in society. Yeah, you would think after a 30-minute conversation with her, you'd know that she she was about as deep as uh, uh, as an inch of water. So uh, uh, it's not like uh, she, she had any substance to, to want. So it must have been something about her looks, I guess. I, I guess so. But, you know, the thing is, like, you would think, I could see Elmer being fascinated by her because he knew her when she was young and he knew her from where she came from. And he was sort of from a similar situation as well and they both rose up in society. But Ralph, you would think that he would be accustomed to somebody a little bit different from Undine and maybe it was the difference that really attracted him. But, you know, I would they had so many rules. Like if you read The Age of Innocence, my God, there are so many rules about how everything has to be done. You know, it has to be like the plate has to be like touching like the fork or something in this way. I mean, it just goes, it's endless. And I couldn't imagine Undine really, I mean, they stressed in the beginning of the book that she watched everything really carefully, but you still can't pick everything up. And then when she went to Europe, also they have so many rules and customs. So it was interesting to me. I mean, it's a really good book, but... Undine, as a character, I just I didn't quite buy it that she would completely captivate all these different men just based on her looks. It just it, I just couldn't go along with that. But anyway, I know we're getting close to um, ten o'clock, so um, Sherry, maybe you'll tell us about the next book for April. I can do that, but I saw somebody's hand pop up. So if anybody has any other comments about this book, go for it. Okay, I guess I was wrong. Um, the next. Uh, Month's book is called Stillwater Rising, and it's by Stina, S-T-E-E-N-A, Holmes, spelled like Sherlock, H-O-L-M-E-S. The DB number is 82651, and I'm going to hit enter and put it up in the chat window. If you want to hit F9, you can cut and paste. Um, this is a pretty short book. It's it's about a the aftermath of a school shooting, so it's a contemporary book. And it's in a small town. And what I found interesting about this book is it starts after the shooting has happened. It does not go into the shooting at all. It's how the town is dealing with it. And one of the main characters is a woman who lost a child. Another character is the mother of the shooter who was also killed. And then there's a mayor who's trying to bring the town together. And I thought it was a really good portrait of what it probably would be like after something awful like this happens. And hopefully there'll be a lot to discuss. Yes, and I'm also going to mention, because I mentioned it at the beginning, but I don't think Jill and Mickey, you were here yet, um, that in May, on May 5th, we're going to have an author join us. Um, her name is Aileen Ohazian, 
and she wrote a historical fiction book that's on Bard called Orham, O-R-H-A-N apostrophe S, Inheritance. Um, it's DB82407, um, and it's only nine hours, so it's not a really long book. Um, so we're going to we're going to do that in May as well. And also, I thought um, Alan and Don, if you wanted to mention your books for Worlds of Books and History, and the next time that you're meeting, that would be great as well. Okay. Well, yeah, this uh, Stillwater Rising will uh, fit. I just finished 19 Minutes by Jody Pico for another another book group. So uh, that's. Uh, that's that's a timely topic. Uh, uh, yeah, we're doing uh, cross justice uh, in worlds of books, and I don't even know what the date is. It's the it's the the third uh, Sunday of the month. So uh, somebody that's better with calendar math than I am uh, will have to tell me what that date is. Uh, you know, Alex Cross is one of James uh, Patterson's uh, uh, characters he's done actually this is the 23rd in the alex cross series but uh, i read it just for pleasure and ended up liking it. i thought oh well uh, let's let's pick a book that i've already read and it'll, it'll give me some extra time so that's what we're talking about in worlds of books thanks uh it's it's going to be the 20th and uh the mystery book is probably going to be put in at uh eight o'clock eastern on the third Sunday of the month, because of Easter. Um, I hope everybody can make it. Okay, uh, on um, the fifth, the fifth of uh, April, a history book. It's called Operation Thunderbolt. It's about the. Uh, it's got a very long title, but the uh, it's about the rescue, uh, hostage rescue in Entebbe. And this happened about forty years ago. It's a very exciting book. I, I found it very interesting. I believe the DB number is 82199, I mean 119. I, I hope it's 82119. And, uh, but it's by uh, Saul, S-A-U-L, David is the author, and it's Operation uh, Thunderbolt will get you the title. I read that 19 Minutes Jody Pico book too, Alan. I thought it was really, really good. Yeah, yeah, it was good. I, I enjoyed it very much. And uh, Mickey, do you remember what the – I missed a mystery book group this last week. Do you remember what the uh, the title is going to be for that, even though it's meeting at the third Sunday? Um, <laughs> I did. Um, I'll find it and email you. Thank you. Well, thanks, everybody. It was a really good discussion. Um, I'm off to watch the debate. Catch you guys next time. Thanks for everybody's comments. I enjoyed the discussion, as always. Bye, all. Thanks. Good night, all.